Well, good evening and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. Thank you for joining us. You're hearing us on EWTN Radio, and we're coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International in Central Ohio. This program, Deep in Scripture, the, uh, the focus of this program is studying the Scriptures uh, within the faith of the Church, uh, within sacred tradition and the teaching of the Church. And so our, our goal is to hear what the teacher that Christ has given us, the Church, helps us understand about a particular text. And our, our guest for tonight is Tom Cabine. He is a former Jehovah Witness. And let me read the short bio that I've posted on our website, deepinscripture.com. You might want to go to that if you can, just to see some of the other things that are available there. Tom was raised as a devout Jehovah Witness in 18, excuse me, in 1968. He joined the headquarters staff of the Watchtower Society in Brooklyn, New York. Spent nearly 12 years there. He served there as an elder and department overseer. He also met and married his wife, Gloria, when biblical and historical studies convinced him that Watchtower theology had fatal flaws, he and Gloria resigned from the headquarters staff and moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Later, when questioned by local witness elders, they admitted to having doubts about Watchtower doctrine. As a result, they were formally disfellowshipped and when subjected then to being shunned, completely cut off from all witnesses, even family and close friends. And although they, though they remained devout, they became functionally agnostics. An intense search for reliable information about God and the authentic Christian faith led them first to evangelical Christianity, where Tom taught adult Bible classes for over 13, 15 years. And then an historical investigation of early Christian teaching and practice led them into the Anglican Communion and then to a thorough study of the Roman Catholic Church and both Tom and Gloria and their son Matt were received into the Roman Catholic Church in 2006. And their son Jim was received uh, in 2009. Tom is currently an aspirant in the diaconal formation program in the Diocese of Hartford, Connecticut. And, and Tom has been on the Journey Home program and as well as the, uh, the roundtable. I think, Tom, I'm trying to remember if you were on that roundtable about Jehovah's Witnesses or not. If you weren't, you should have been. But uh, it's great to have you on the show, Tom. You'll join me in a little bit. Those of you listening, uh, I'd like to know, to inform you, you can give us a call. If you have a question for Tom, uh, what we're going to cover tonight is pretty intense. But we would love to have your comments and questions. If you'd like to call us, you can do so at 800-664-5110. Off the air, you can contact 740-450-1175. Or you can send me an email anytime at marcus at deepinscripture.com. Now, I, Tom's choice for a text was Matthew 26, 26, 28. And the reason that he chose that, he'll talk about in a little bit, is because of the, of the, the differences in understanding of the Lord's Supper between the Jehovah Witnesses and then his Protestant background, and now the Catholic Church. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. And let me read this passage, and then we'll take a break, and then Tom will join us. And as I said, he, he's going to deal with a lot of good stuff tonight, um, and it might be a bit 
intense. And so I want you to know that if, as you're listening, if you want to find out more about what he is discussing this evening, we're going to have very soon uh, a text of the topic he's discussing tonight on the deepinscripture.com website. But, okay, this is the passage he wants to focus on this evening. Matthew 26, 26 through 28. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. The Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our seventh annual Deep in History Conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year, we will begin on the rock, looking to understand the question of authority, the pillar and bulwark of truth. Join us the weekend of October 23rd as we bring together another exciting list of speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined tonight by Tom Cabean. Hello, Tom. Hi, Marcus. How are you? Well, great. And it's it's great to have you join us on the program. Uh, it's my privilege. Thank uh, you for inviting me. I particular, pat- particularly appreciate your witness. Um, you know, there was a verse in 2 Cor- uh, Corinthians that talks about the fact that often we suffer so that uh, in the way that we're comforted, we're able to comfort others, which has always told me that part of the reason that the Lord allows us to go through th- certain things is so that God has equipped us to help others who are going through the similar things. And when I, when I know concept, your background, uh, I really believe that that's part of the reason why God allowed you to have the background you have to help others who either are in a similar situation or who are confronted by particular Jehovah's Witnesses at their front door. And it is a quite, quite a different uh, uh, conception of Christianity that Witnesses have as well. And I agree with you that it is... Uh, I think that it was God's leading that I had to go through the particular pilgrimage that I went through. And uh, I believe that because it has enabled me to help many, many former witnesses uh, to leave not only the witness uh, uh, group, but also to enter uh, the Catholic Church, uh, a number of them. Well, um, you chose Matthew 26 tonight, and, and uh, I'll tell the audience that you actually wrote up a um, an eight-page description of the uh, of the topic that you want us to focus on tonight, and it's superb. I'm not sure that we'll get to it all, and I told the audience that we can post it on the website because uh, you know we'll do the best we can in this hour. But um, but but just to make it 
uh, even more difficult for you to cover the whole thing. <laughs> well, during the introduction, we got a phone call. And uh, I think rather than interrupt the flow, uh, this is, uh, this is a, uh, we got a call from Dan from Kentucky, and he's asking a question that is, I think, a very common one uh, for so many. And it's, he wonders if there is a bulletproof question he can ask Jehovah Witnesses in his discussions with them that will challenge their faith and make them open to the truth. Everybody wants that bullet, that silver bullet, right? No, you, you, there is a silver bullet, but the silver bullet is not a question that you can ask Jehovah's Witnesses. The most effective way to help a Jehovah's Witness is to ask God the question and uh, ask him for his help and for his spirit, because that's really uh, the most effective way to get people to listen. Uh, they, God knows the time at, at which their hearts are open and uh, he really will answer prayers, but he does so in his own time. Yes. And uh, so, no, there is no question that you can ask witnesses, but if you keep asking God, you will have the greatest possible chance of success. And I'm wondering if that's a, a wonderful uh, perspective, and I'm wondering if that's also because a large number of the witnesses that come to our door really don't know their faith as well as they ought to. And so we're, what we're doing is we're asking God to give us the guidance because everyone that comes to our door is an individual, uh, individual hearts and minds that by grace God might open to the message. I agree. Apart from grace, uh, witnesses, uh, they have been very, very strongly indoctrinated in the witness belief system. And when they come to your door, they are not in listening mode. They are there to sell you something. And it isn't a Watchtower magazine. It's to sell you their conception of what Christianity is about. And um, if you get one that really believes, uh, in to any extent, what the Watchtower Society teaches, uh, you will generally have a hard time. Uh, you can plant seeds and then ask God uh, to make them grow. But uh, it's generally not a, a good time when yeah. witnesses come to your door, uh, particularly if they're with someone else. And, and they almost always see, are, really. Yes, and, that, and, and it's because of the fact that if they were to express doubts, genuine doubts about their own faith in front of another witness, they would be in trouble. And, and mm. you, I'll, I'll kind of cover that a little bit as okay. we go farther down into the... All right, uh, let's get to this passage in Matthew 26. Talk about why you chose this passage, Tom. I'm going to tell you about this, uh, Marcus, because uh, from the time that I was a, a very small child, I was raised as a, as a Jehovah's Witness. I was very, very devout. And this scripture had an almost magical quality for me. And in order for you to understand why that is, um, I, I need to explain a little bit about what witnesses believe. All right. That is that uh, in, in Watchtower theology, God intended for all humans to live forever in paradise no one was going to go to heaven. And uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost that chance for paradise. And uh, Adam had this whole race of unborn children in his loins. And so in order to set things right again, uh, there had to be the payment of exactly what was lost. And that is a, a perfect man, the exact equivalent of Adam, had to die with an unborn race of children in his loins. And, and so this is this is the sets the stage for the witness concept of Jesus. 
uh, they believe that one of God's created angels, an archangel, they actually believe it's the archangel Michael, uh, became a human, but not a person who had a divine nature and a human nature, but an exact equal of Adam. And he rescued us by dying, which satisfied God's justice. And uh, so Jesus died and was resurrected. He was raised back to heaven uh, as a as exactly what he was before, a spirit angel creature, not God the Son, not the second person of the Trinity, not a glorified human with both divine and human natures. So, he, so essentially now they would believe he is Michael the archangel? Yes. In a, well, in a sense, Michael changed his identity. Now he's known as Jesus, but oh, okay. he started out as Michael. All right. So um, now, now that, that, that satisfied the justice side of the equation, and now you've got all these people that have grown up uh, since Adam and Eve's uh, sin, and they need to be taught how to live sinless lives. And so God instituted something that was not originally part of his plan, and that is that a very limited number of people were going to go to heaven, and they were going to serve as members of a heavenly administration that would, that would rule for a thousand years. This is the, their concept of the millennium. And during the millennium, what will happen is that all people who've ever lived from the time of Adam on will be resurrected uh, a little at a time and then... And essentially given the opportunity to become Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, then uh, at the end of the thousand-year reign, they'll all be tested just like Adam and Eve were. And, and so um, they, if, if they are faithful, then that will have undone everything that happened since Adam's uh, sin in Eden. Now, these people that are going to heaven, they believe from... Uh, Revelation chapter 7 and 14 are number, are limited to 144,000. Although everything else in that passage they say is is symbolic, that number is literal. And so they teach that uh, that number, there's a lot of other details, but sure. just a, in a quick view of it, that number was completed in 1935. And so... Um, there are a few uh, in the in this watchtower scheme of things. There are a few of those people that are still uh, alive, still living, and that's what brings us to the, the, their celebration of the Lord's evening meal. They call it the memorial. It's a reminder of what Jesus did, and since they connect that that meal with this heavenly kingdom, and only the one hundred and forty-four thousand. Only those with that hope actually participate by eating, and I'm going to call it bread, and why? Because that's what it is in their, in their tradition. <laughs> and um, it's really quite bizarre, I, although I was raised with this, and I actually was a part of a list of, of uh, sort of exclusive speakers that uh, used to speak at the memorial. And one of the things that I, I had to confess when I became a, uh, a Catholic is that I had tried to convince hundreds and hundreds of people that they should not partake of the emblems uh, is what they call them. And so, but it had a very special connotation for me because taking of the bread and wine was something that only a very, very limited number of people did. So that's kind of in a nutshell where I was uh, at the time that I left the Watchtower Society. I had 
I had come to believe that all Christians ought to take the bread and wine. Now let me let me ask you just as a summary again a couple of things. So from a Jehovah Witness standpoint, the, the eternal destiny of the majority of people on this earth. I don't know if it's everyone that's on this earth, but at least those, the majority of Jehovah Witnesses, their eternal destiny is a life on earth. Is that that's correct? That's correct. There's that's these 144,000 who will uh, end up in heaven with Jesus um, to what, what I think you had said in, in this paper, that they're, they're part of the management. That's correct. That's exactly right. And in fact, they don't even guess at what they might do after this management project is over. Um, it, they do not have a concept of eternal bliss, the beatific vision, or anything okay. of that nature. It's, uh, they're focused very much on, the, on the, the task at hand, which is essentially to turn everybody that ever lived into a Jehovah's Witness. All right, and so the majority... Now, what about all the people in the world that aren't Jehovah's Witnesses? Well, uh, they... If they are, if they get destroyed at their upcoming battle of Armageddon that they believe is in the very, very near future, if that happens, then they are gone forever. This, okay. this is their chance uh, to to be Jehovah's Witnesses. They're being offered that chance right now. When they come to your door, that's really what they're offering you is the chance to become one of Jehovah's Witnesses. Because if you get destroyed by God at, in His battle, then you don't get another chance. That's it. All right. So once the uh, Armageddon's over than those that have survived end up with a life for eternity on this physical existence on earth. Mm -hmm. And then you have the 144,000, a few of which you say are still alive yet. Um, uh, and they are the only ones that can actually partake of the memorial. Feast. That's correct. All right. So that that's kind of a, a uh, an overview of that. So we should... Okay. Uh, with that as kind of a, a, a background, then we go to the next stage of my journey after we left the, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh -huh. Then I began to substitute uh, a, a more evangelical Protestant view. So you had a conversion to Protestantism. I did. Uh, which in itself would have been a, a radical uh, mental uh, gymnastics uh, just to accept uh, in general Christianity versus what you have been brought up your whole life as Jehovah's Witness. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. And now I had another problem, and that is uh, evangelical Christians or Protestant Christians have a number of, uh, of differing theories as to how the reconciliation of sinful people to a righteous God occurs. And I'm sure you can bear witness to this yourself. Yeah, right. uh, there are these, uh, I mean, one very common model of this is uh, man is sinful, we're separated from God, our sin creates a gap or gulf that we can't cross. Uh, evangelical Protestants will be very familiar with this. Sinners, yeah. by reason of their sin, they deserve God's wrath. All sins are ultimately against an infinite person, God, so... The only, only the death of an in, uh, of a, an infinite person, the divine Jesus, accomplishes that reconciliation. And uh, there's a common view of uh, this, you know, huge thing that looks like a Grand Canyon with a cross laying over it and people right. walking across the cross. You know, and that and that's not a, a, a bad model. It it really isn't. It isn't like that model is completely wrong. It it really isn't. But um, there are some. It's a part of the story. They're, they're correct. It's only part of the story, and they, there is um, 
a very common corollary of that is that salvation is something that happens at a moment in time and and believing in Christ which is the thing that makes it happen is something that you what you really are doing is believing that that model is correct you're believing in the reality of Christ's redemptive work now a kind of a problem with that um, is that there's this scriptural uh, exhortation to repentance uh, changed behavior as a result of Mm-hmm. becoming a Christian. Um, but on the other hand, uh, mo- most Protestants, or a lot of Protestants, uh, are, are quite uh, sensitive to not attempting to work their way to heaven. And so uh, in this sort of substitutionary view that they have, Jesus, uh, he, in a, I, re- I used to think of it, I used to teach it this way, that when Jesus looks at you, a sinner, Jesus, in effect, stands in front of you, and God doesn't see you. He yes. sees Jesus, and you're covered. His righteousness uh, covers you. Uh, what doesn't happen in that model is that you actually have the opportunity to, to change and become righteous. And so in one, one model of that, uh, one explanation of it is that we're kind of like balls of dung covered by a white layer of snow. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it, the the sort of mechanism of salvation is entirely entirely in the hands of Jesus. He not only does the heavy lifting, he does all the lifting. Yeah, and that view, which would have first uh, sprung forth from Martin Luther himself, and then was uh, fine tuned in many many ways by John Calvin and then other Reformed mm-hmm. theologians, is become the assumed theology of thousands and thousands of evangelicals. And I was one of those pastors that taught that very thing. Yes, yes. And uh, it, it really is kind of a conflict. For me, there was a conflict that I had in there because I, I really wanted to please God, and it seemed to me to make a lot of sense. And, and to their credit, a lot of Protestants teach that the result of a person really uh, being influenced by grace is that they become better people. Right. And and so uh, many many uh, evangelical Protestants are excellent people because they they really are attempting to please Christ and they're trying to to uh, be transformed mm-hmm. in into uh, the, the image of Christ. And you, we'd have to recognize that there are whole. Uh, streams of Protestantism that reacted against this uh, view of, uh, of kind of hyper grace alone, hyper um, uh, you know, speaking against uh, works of, of love, and that in many ways it's the Wesleyan movement that calls for holiness and sanctification, the big emphasis on that. Um, and then the two firm extremes of both sides. You have the, the Calvinist extreme side, which basically says you can't lose your salvation because there's nothing you can do to win it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. And then you have the hyper Wesleyan side that uh, strongly emphasizes the fact not only we can lose it, but kind of this, this, this almost living in guilt, constantly wondering and, and trying to earn, or not, not really wouldn't want to earn salvation, but this need to kind of purge yourself constantly of whatever sin might stand in our way of God. Exactly, exactly. And in fact, some of them even say that any any effort that you make 
to try to save yourself by works is actually uh, amounts to a lack of faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross, that you're really sort of uh, showing everybody that you don't really trust that Jesus did everything for you. Well, in that in that um, model, when I was struggling with that model, and I must I must admit that I, I had a number of issues with that. One of them, one of which was that I remember very clearly, like it was yesterday, I was working on a project. I was actually painting our bedroom, and I was thinking while I was working, and and I thought, you know, when when I go to heaven. Um, and God removes all sin from me and everything. At that point, I had a kind of a bad concept of, of, of hazy concept of what really was sin. I had sin and imperfection and everything all sort of mixed up. And I thought, when God removes all sin from me, will I know myself? Will I be the same person? Uh, you know, it's just, I, I mean, I really, I really puzzled about that. Well, at any rate, uh, I, I'll get a little bit more to that in a, in a minute. Um, most Protestant denominations offer the communion meal to all baptized Christians. And while I was an evangelical Protestant, I was in the Baptist tradition, uh, the bread and, and wine are, are viewed as a means to remind us that Christ died for our sins, and it also, because we all partook of it together, it was a sign of our shared belief in Christ and our, and our fellowship. Um, but it does not have as much importance as it does in the Catholic tradition, because in many Protestant churches, uh, the communion is celebrated only once a month. Uh, I don't know what it was in your in your communion when you were a Protestant. That's right. Uh, as a Lutheran, it was once a month. A Presbyterian, once a month. Although when I served in the Church of Scotland, it was once a year. Yes. Witnesses did it once a year, and that made it kind of a big deal for witnesses. And... Uh, uh, we'd get together that once a year, but nobody partook of the, of the uh, uh, emblems, as we call them. So uh, now, now this brings me up to the late 1990s. Uh, any, is anything that I left out of here? No, that sounds fine. At that point? Okay. Actually, Tom, this would be a great chance for a break. We'll come back okay. because Excellent. at this point in time, uh, you're going to talk about your discovery of the early church fathers and their view on exactly. the Lord's Supper. So let's take a break now. We'll be back in just a moment. Thank you. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. My guest tonight is Tom Capine, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, and I'm joined this evening by Tom Cabean. And uh, you've done a wonderful summary uh, so far of your background, both as a Jehovah's Witnesses and then, you know, finding your way through Protestantism, which, as you said, there are a lot of different views when it comes to both atonement as well as uh, the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Uh, but then you discovered the early church fathers. Yes. 
This is in the late uh, 1990s that I, I discovered the early church fathers. And uh, whereas in the witness view, uh, atonement was really simple. I mean, it was a transaction. And uh, there wasn't much you could explain practically the whole thing in a, in a page or two, which I, I sort of have done in summarizing it. Um, in the Protestant tradition, there were a, a, a number of different flavors of this, but I've seen the atonement uh, explained on a lot of little tracks and things like that. Uh, a friend of mine became, who was also a former witness, uh, became very involved with uh, reading the early um, Christian fathers, and uh, he got me interested in doing that. And as I read the writings of these early Christians, I could see that their view of this thing was not easily packaged up. It was a very multifaceted teaching, a lot of nuanced and interrelated parts. And I began to see that the the process of reconciling sinful humans with a righteous, holy God was not a simple transaction, nor was it simply a matter of me believing that it had been that it, it had been done. And one milestone for me was. Uh, early in, uh, it's actually by around 2003, I think, I was reading a document called The Shepherd of Hermas. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was very popular in the second and third centuries. Uh, in fact, uh, even for some churches, it was considered, uh, for a while, it was considered to be a part of what we now call the New Testament. Absolutely. And it wasn't until the end of the fourth century that the church decided it wasn't to be a part of the canon but it was to be a book that uh, was recommended for reading, for devotional reading, but, but just not a part of sacred scripture. Exactly. And in fact, in the oldest extant uh, manuscript, uh, the Sinaiticus uh, manuscript, uh, it's actually included right in there with the New Testament. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm reading this thing, and, I, and, I, and I, there's a section there in which this angel gives Hermas uh, 12 mandates or ethical precepts for Christians. They're, they're very, very straightforward, very patterned very strongly after the Ten Commandments. And at the very end, the, the angel says, walk in these commandments and exhort your hearers that their repentance may be pure during the remainder of their life. Fulfill carefully this ministry which I now entrust you, and you will accomplish much. And Hermas replies to him, I'm, I'm just paraphrasing a bit. Right. Sir, these commandments are great, good, and glorious, and fitted to gladden the heart of man who can perform them. But I do not know if these commandments can be kept by man, because they're exceedingly hard. And the angel gets angry with him and replies, Listen, if you lay it down as certain that they can be kept, then you will easily keep them, and they will not be hard. But if you come to imagine that they cannot be kept by man, then you will not keep them. Now I say to you, if you do not keep them but neglect them, you will not be saved. Well, I was, I was still an evangelical Protestant at this point, and that passage hit me like a ton of bricks. I thought, I said, wow. And I thought, now, I began to, to see this possibility that God expects humans to obey his commandments. But I had been taught, and, and just about everybody that I knew believed that we humans have a sin nature which prevents us from obeying Christ's commands. And because God knows we have a sin nature, he doesn't really expect us to keep his commands, but just sort of aim toward keeping them. Um, now, I am not saying here that the early Christians believed that, that uh, all Christians could leave us, lead completely sinless lives. But they did have the expectation that efforts that we make toward obedience could be much more fruitful than I thought that they could ever be. Yeah. 
And then I began to think about the Great Commission, you know, uh, Matthew 28, 19 and 20 in there, where Jesus says to his apostles there, he says, uh, make, go and make disciples of people of all the nations. And, and do what? He said, teach them to obey all the things I've commanded you. I thought, now, how, why would Jesus say something like that if we couldn't obey the things he'd commanded us to do? Because and, our sin nature made it impossible. And that statement, that, that, that reflection that you just said on that passage applies to almost everything Jesus taught. And as an evangelical, what often happens is you, you almost have to set aside Jesus' teachings to a time before the cross that don't apply to us now because he was calling us to radical obedience. And if he ex- called us to that, then he should, we could, should assume that he could expect that we could do so by grace. Yes. Yes, exactly. And, and whereas I had believed that, for example, the Old Testament... Uh, I, I, had, I had a conception of the Old Testament that the purpose of the Old Testament is simply to show us that we were sinful and that we couldn't possibly keep God's laws. And then I, I was talking to a friend of my son, uh, Matt, uh, a, a graduate student at Yale University, and she, was a, um, she had attended some, some uh, she was a Christian, but she had attended some classes with uh, a, a Jewish professor, and the Jewish professor had said, uh, it, it was about the Old Testament, it was Jewish studies, and he said one of the differences between Christians and Jews is that Christians believe that God gave them commandments that he did not expect them to keep. But Jews believe that that would be wrong for God to command you to do something that was impossible for you to do. And I remember that had a big big influence on me as well. You know, that, that, that was about the same time that I was reading this in uh, The Shepherd. Um, but then I started looking at Romans chapter 6, you know, one of the, my favorite passages of Scripture. And then what does it say? Shall we persist in sin that grace may abound? Of course not. You know, how can we continue to live in sin? Uh, our sinful body is done away with so that we may no longer be in slavery to sin. Uh, sin is not to have any power over you. And, and now I'm starting to look at them in a completely different way. I'm saying to myself, wow, this isn't just figurative speech. St. Paul is really talking about being set free from sin. And uh, St. Peter says the same thing. He himself bore our sins in our body upon the cross so that free from sin, we might live for righteousness. It, it, was, a, it was a complete transformation in the way I looked at the work that Jesus was doing among among Christians on earth, Marcus. Let, like me, add a, let me add another verse, because uh, those two verses that you just quoted about that very issue, about whether we can, by grace, grow in holiness, is really what he's talking about in these verses, is uh, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, struck me in the same way. I actually helped a Protestant teacher write a commentary on 1 John, and when I was working on this passage at the time, it, 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 it was one of those verses I didn't know what to do with because John says, My children, I am writing this to you so that you may not commit sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I mean, the point of that passage is John is writing this because he expects the people to be able to eventually, by grace, start cleaning up their lives. Exactly. It, it's, it's so remarkable 
that when I began to grasp what he was saying, I, I had to read these passages over and over again. I said, is that really what he's saying? And I'm saying, yes, <laughs> that's what he's saying. <laughs> uh, it was just, uh, it, it, it affected a complete transformation in the way I viewed uh, Christianity and the work of Jesus Christ. Now suddenly I, I was in a project here rather than, I mean, the way I, I, I thought about it at the time, I thought about the, the model that I had before was as if you were in your car and you had a car, uh, you know, an accident and it was all bent up and, uh, and the, you took it to the, to the uh, body shop and the guy just threw a big covering over the top of it and said, well, now we're going to pretend like it's a new car here, but underneath it's still all bent up, you know? Uh, and now I see Jesus has actually decided that he is going to fix the car. Now, this is the big change for me, and this is why this passage from Matthew 26 became so important. As I was reading the early uh, Christian writings, I began to see that, the, that, the, that they connected again and again the power to make these changes with the Eucharist. And uh, the connection is very complex. Uh, and it's very, uh, but it's very straightforward that the that the most important part of this transformation process is our being linked with Christ through the Eucharist. And it was at that time that I first understood or first uh, learned about the doctrine of the real presence. I had never really known about that doctrine, and and in fact. Because I had tried to understand it in the context of my Protestant understanding of, of the reconciliation, it didn't make any sense to me. If Christ has already covered your sins with his righteousness, his being coming real in the Eucharist it was of really no value. It didn't do anything. And, and so it just seemed like a, a silly doctrine that had been made up uh, to, to sort of uh, add a sort of mystical uh, uh, element to the, to the, the celebration. Um, but then I, I, I'm reading these uh, 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 early Christian documents, and here's Justin Martyr. Uh, here's, I'm going to read a little quote from his uh, first apology. He says, Not as common bread and common drink do we receive the Eucharist, but as Jesus Christ our Savior, having been made flesh by the Word of God, had both flesh and blood for our salvation. So likewise, we have been taught that the food which is blessed by the prayer of his word is the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. I, I couldn't believe this. I, it, was, it was amazing. I said, you know, th this uh, Justin was born, uh, although he wasn't a Christian at the time, but he was born when the Apostle John was still living. Uh, this was not... Uh, a doctrine that had developed hundreds of years later uh, uh, in the Middle Ages or something. This was early, uh, and I found all kinds of of, uh, of quotes like this uh, that that uh, you know Ignatius he he called the Eucharist the medicine of immortality, the antidote to prevent us from dying, so that we should live forever in Jesus Christ. Uh, Ignatius was trained by St. Peter and St. John. He was taught to be a bishop by these apostles. Uh, there was no way that he misunderstood this, so that he was just trying to make it special by making something up. Um, Irenaeus says, the bread produced from earth, 
this is in the, also in the second century, is no longer common bread, but the Eucharist, consisting of two realities, earthly and heavenly. And what is the effect of eating this? He says, our bodies, when they receive the Eucharist, are no longer corruptible. Well, I could go on, and I have a number of quotes here, but uh, I could see that this was a whole new thing because now the understanding was that Christ comes into my body through my mouth. I, I eat him and drink him, which was very offensive to me, just like it was to those Jews in John chapter 6, who, when, John, when Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will by no means have eternal life. And they said, how can you say something like this? This is so revolting. I can't do this. Um, so I don't know if you're, uh, this is probably a good time to uh, break here. Want to take or, another break? Sure, Tom. Yes. Because when we come back, you, of course, we'll, we'll come back, we'll have about 10 or 15 minutes or so, but you can deal with your own journey into discovering the Catholic perspective. And we, is, is that a good place for you to come That's back to? Excellent. All right. Let's, let's take a breather and we'll come back in just a moment. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grody. I'm joined tonight by Tom Cabine, former Jehovah Witness, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. I'm joined this evening by Tom Cabine. And I want to tell you, even as you're listening, if you're interested in reading in more detail what Tom is speaking about, you can go to deepinscripture.com. And at the top of the page, you'll see a link that's called Keynote Scripture Passage for Tom Cabine. And it'll, it'll give you an uh, eight-page PDF to discuss in more detail and actually, after you read that, if you have some questions, of course, we'd love to hear from you. And you could write Tom or write the Coming Home Network, and we'll pass it on to Tom because I'm sure you would love to answer any questions you might have. All right, Tom, let's pick it up because uh, you have a lot in that passage, but we've got some time, so I'd love to hear it now. You, Good. Did this lead you automatically to the Catholic Church? No, it didn't, but it, it certainly got me on the way there. Uh, one thing that happened to me, a, a very subtle transformation was happening to me. And that was, as I was reading the, the writings of the early Christians, and I began to see uh, how little I really understood about the work that Jesus had set out to do in the first century, and that he did successfully down through the centuries, I began to realize that um, I was getting more and more trust in the church, in the, the bishops, those teachers of the church that had been... Uh, 
teaching me as I read their their writings. And um, and certainly in the early church fathers, you would have found many references that says, hey, where the bishop is, there's Jesus Christ. Ignatius said that very thing. Yeah. And I had a, sim- a, a, a very similar experience to what uh, G.K. Chesterton talks about, that if you check out each thing you, that, that, that the church teaches and you find out that they're right about this thing and they're right about that thing, and I, I I'd come out of the tradition where I was kind of the final judge as to is this right or is that right, and, and I was making the final decisions. And finally, I began to realize that they know what they're talking about. And so, as Chesterton expresses it, I, I, I came to begin to come to see them as a truth truth-telling thing. The church I saw as a truth-telling thing. And uh, at the time I was uh, still, by this time I was in the Anglican Communion, and I was uh, much more uh, comfortable with the uh, liturgical way of worshiping and the the understanding that the Anglican Church has also in the real presence of Christ. Uh, They have a little different slant on it. But I began to see the value of this great, great uh, transforming power of Christ, that it was something that came uh, into us, that there's this literal transformation that takes place, uh, in, and that it is, once that his body and blood comes into us, uh, it's, as one writer says, it's given as a sort of medicine against the opposing power, and also against the sin of those who open their minds to the truth. So the people who open their minds to the truth can be actually helped. They've got a medicine against sin. And um, it, it, we're set free from sin by a power beyond our words in the life of each believer. And so um, this, I began to understand that you really have the power to overcome sin by opening yourself up to Jesus coming into your uh, own self. Uh, by eating him, his body, soul, the divinity comes into you, and that empowers you to do what is right. Now, there was only one final piece to the puzzle, and that was um, I was not sure exactly what affects the transformation. Uh, I, for a while, I thought it was my own faith, my belief that it was the body and blood of Christ that was really kind of all that was necessary. But again, back in Justin... He says it is it is blessed, and uh, I could I, I studied by this time I had begun studying the, the teachings of the Catholic Church, and I I said now who can give this blessing of consecration? There's a blessing. You start out with bread and wine, you end up with a body and blood of Christ. In the middle is a blessing, and since apostolic times, it's always been given by a priest who was appointed by a bishop in a direct line of succession from the apostles. Every such appointment uh, of, of this is a holy outward sign of an inward grace, and, and that is the sacrament of holy orders. And so, uh, Justin says, we have been taught that the food which is blessed by the prayer of his word, his being the priest, is the flesh and blood of Jesus. Well, I was... I was in the Anglican Church at this point, and I was very, very happy in the Anglican Church. My parish was relatively orthodox, and uh, I I really liked it. Um, I loved the the Anglican liturgy and the music, 
Uh, but I had become absolutely convinced that the critical role in being conformed to Christ's image was eating his body and blood, which meant that you absolutely have to have valid holy orders, because unless you're in that holy orders, the, the consecration doesn't take place. Now, Roman Catholics and the Orthodox can make an absolutely airtight case that their apostolic succession is without any breaks in it. But the Anglican Church, there, there are some possible questions. It may be that some Anglican orders are valid, and, and, and it's very likely that some are not valid. But you can't know for sure. And if you can't know for sure, then you have to assume that none of them are valid. Because if some are and some aren't, some people are getting the, the valid Eucharist and some aren't. At least that's the way I saw it. And so uh, for me, I, I was drawn to the Catholic Church. I said, I, I, I have to have this valid Eucharist. This has become, for me, Marcus, the, the center of my life. Since I became a Catholic, I think I have only missed four or five uh, days when I was traveling. Um, I go to Mass every single day because this is why I became a Catholic, so I could have the body and blood of Christ. You know, I'm going to read um, a quote from St. Augustine, uh, which I think uh, touches on an issue that uh, you're getting on, and, and it, it, can, it can sound controversial, all right, but I, I want you to hear it and then reflect on it. Uh, St. Augustine said in his Discourse to Church, to the church at Caesarea, he said, a man cannot have salvation except in the Catholic Church. Outside the Catholic Church, he can have everything except salvation. He can have honor, he can have sacraments, he can sing hallelujah, he can answer amen, he can possess the gospel, he can have and preach faith in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, but never except in the Catholic Church will he be able to find salvation. Now, uh, we recognize today through the teaching of the church that those who are ignorant of the Catholic Church, those uh, invincibly ignorant, then, then we're talking about a different story. Or even those that have left the church who may not have been formed very well at all may not have known what they were doing, let's say. But we're not going to make that judgment. But in the time of St. Augustine, the point is he's talking about people who were Catholics but decided to break away and take away with them some of the stuff, but leave some of it behind. Yes. And, you know, when you look at the Reformation, the first thing that Luther casts away is the authority of the church, but particularly ordination of the priesthood. And as a result of that, then no longer is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper the Eucharist. And what Augustine is saying is that unless you're in the church with the holy orders, unless you're in the church that has the authentic Eucharist, you cannot be certain that you have this medicine for your soul. Exactly, exactly. And for me, when Jesus said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. There's just no way I was going to take a chance on that, Marcus. Mm -hmm. this, this, this is life and death. Uh, for me, and again, I'm very much in agreement with what you said, that uh, uh, it, it, we can certainly understand that the, uh, there's no salvation except in the church to mean, and it does mean, that all salvation comes through Jesus Christ, 
no matter whether you're in or outside the church, uh, you will, if you are saved, it will be because Jesus Christ has saved you. Uh, There's no one else that does any saving but Jesus Christ. But it's not so much a matter of of saying, well, how much can I get away with? I I want (laughs) what he was offering. And I want to sort of close here with a... With this quote from uh, uh, the Bishop of Constantinople, uh, John, known as uh, Chrysostom, the the silver or golden tongue uh, one, and he said, Consider, consider with what sort of honor you were honored, of what sort of table you are partaking, that which when angels behold they tremble and dare not so much as look up at it, without awe on account of the brightness that comes thence with this we are fed with this we are commingled and we are made one body and one flesh with christ what else can i say (laughs) and that is i mean it really is a powerful expression because we recognize that our eastern orthodox brothers and sisters and and Catholics, we share this same belief because at the time that Chrysostom writing, which was at the identical time as as St. Augustine, yes. was giving an Eastern perspective and Augustine the Western perspective of the same church at the time to this absolute necessity of the graces we receive through the Eucharist. And the great inestimable, inestimable privilege that we have of being made one with God. This is, I mean, it's so astounding that at the beginning when I was reading it, I, I couldn't believe it. I was looking at this, and I was saying, is this, is this really what this means? And I said, and once I was convinced, I said, I'm, I'm getting that. I'm, I'm going for it. I am going to, whatever it takes, I'm going to have that heavenly food. And drawing us back to Matthew 26, when it says that, his blood and his body were shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins. We recognize that it's only a part of it is the substitutionary. The rest of it is to providing this means by which we can fulfill the law by grace that we receive exactly. through his sacrifice of his body and blood. Well, Tom, thanks a lot. I mean, you've got a lot done in this hour. Appreciate that. And uh, I'd love to have you back on the program sometime where we can talk about other aspects of your journey from the Jehovah Witnesses to the Catholic faith. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm very glad to have been here. And I want to thank all of you that are listening. Uh, if, again, if you'd like to find, read in more detail what Tom was speaking of tonight, you can go to deepinscripture.com. And there's a link that says to keynote scripture passage from Tom Cabine. Or you can call our office at 800-664-5110. And we'll get you a copy of that. Thank you for joining us on this program. God bless you. Look forward to seeing you again next week.